This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Wednesday, the divide over climate change in the coalition. Senior ministers say they are committed to net zero, despite a national senator claiming it's dead. How will it play out with voters? And one of the world's top universities comes to grips with its historical links to slavery. Institutions never talk about it because Harvard was also noted in the 19th century for being an abolitionist university where they had a lot of people who wanted to end slavery. So we never really knew about that early part of their history. So now we know. First up today, inflation. An official interest rate rise in the middle of the election campaign is looking more likely after consumer inflation surged in the first three months of this year. The consumer price index has blown out well ahead of expectations, increasing the annual cost of living by just over 5%. Some economists say the Reserve Bank's independence will be damaged if it doesn't raise the cash rate at next Tuesday's board meeting. For more, I'm joined now by our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, good afternoon. Does it look like inflation is here to stay with us for a while? Well, good afternoon, Sally. This inflation update has shot above even the most pessimistic expectations. 2.1% in the first quarter of this year, making 5.1% over the 12 months. Now, this is the largest annual increase in consumer prices since June 2001 after the introduction of the goods and services tax. Now, this is a big problem given that the Reserve Bank has a mandate to keep inflation in a 2 to 3% target band over time. Time. The biggest uh, price rises have been for new dwelling purchases by owner occupiers, up 5.7%. Automotive fuel, 11%. Of course, uh, this reading predates the halving of the fuel excise, which is ending in September. But fuel costs are up for the seventh consecutive quarter, exacerbated by the Ukraine war and supply blockages. But this is the strongest annual rise for fuel since Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. Food is up 4.3% over the year. We know supermarket shopping can result in bill shock at the moment. Price rises seen across all food and non-food grocery products in the March quarter. Housing costs up 6.7% and transport costs up 13.7% because of those higher fuel costs and labour shortages from the COVID restrictions. So Peter, these numbers are confirming what a lot of people are feeling at the Bowser and also at the checkout. The big question now is what will this mean for the Reserve Bank meeting next Tuesday? Are they likely to increase interest rates? Well, Sally, uh, just yesterday, uh, most economists were still thinking the Reserve Bank would wait and see wages growth data, which is out on May the 18th, just a few days before the election. That would be their out. But just looking at uh, futures, money markets now see a 90% chance that the Reserve Bank will raise rates on Tuesday at the May board meeting, right in the middle of the election campaign, mirroring similar action on Melbourne Cup Day in 2007 when the cash rate was hiked a week before the election because of inflation. David Bassanese, who's chief economist at BetaShares, told me the Reserve Bank's credibility on inflation and independence from politics is on the line if the board holds back because of the election campaign and doesn't raise rates next Tuesday. 
To be frank, I mean, I think the case for a rate rise is so clear now, there's really no reason to wait until June. And so I think they should and will go in May. Look, every economist in the country knows there's a case to raise interest rates now. And if the RBA doesn't raise rates next week, the only reason they didn't was because of the sensitivity around the election campaign. So if that's what the RBA is happy to signal, fine. But I mean, everyone, you know, blind Freddie will know that that's the reason why they didn't raise rates. And Peter, just finally, what does this all mean for the federal election campaign with inflation up and the prospect of interest rates going up too? Well, this campaign is primarily about strong economic management, so a task for both the Coalition and Labor on how to ease the soaring cost of living and what policies they're going to present to bring inflation under control. Higher rates will be good news for depositors, in particular retirees who've been doing it tough, but whoever wins the election will need to deal with the pain when banks pass on higher rates and mortgage borrowers brace for higher repayments. Peter, thank you. That's our senior business correspondent there, Peter Ryan. Well, to politics now, and Nationals MPs are urging their outspoken colleague Matt Canavan to pull his head in after he reignited the internal battle over climate change with a claim that net zero is dead. Just weeks from the election, the Coalition Senator's comments are being seized by inner-city independents who say it's proof the government can't be trusted. As David Lipson reports, even members of his own party admit it may hurt their chances. In Rockhampton, for a speech decrying the city-country divide evident in other countries... In the United States, for example, the politics of geography has seen the rise of what was an incredibly fractured society. The Prime Minister was fighting back an outbreak of division in his own ranks with a distinctly city-country flavour after pro-coal Queensland Senator Matt Canavan ripped the scab off the old climate change policy saw yesterday declaring net zero is dead and doubling down on Channel 9 this morning. If net zero is alive and kicking, why are Europe... Why are European countries desperate for our coal right now? The government spent most of last year fighting over climate change policy, eventually settling on a net zero by 2050 commitment after promising the junior coalition partner, the Nationals, billions of taxpayer dollars in funding for regional projects. The fight cost ex-Nationals frontman Michael McCormack his leadership and this morning on RN Breakfast he told host Patricia Carvelis the coalition deal still stands. We agreed to it, and of course, it's well known that uh, there were some things that the Nationals gained because of that. Is it time for Matt Canavan to pull his head in? Yes. Is Matt Canavan harming your election, re-election chances? Well, it doesn't help. The man who replaced him as leader, Barnaby Joyce, was in Rockhampton at the same time as the Prime Minister, but was a notable absentee at the PM's press conference, especially since the focus was regional jobs. We're a party and a a coalition um, that brings people from all sorts of different perspectives. That debate has been done in the coalition and is is resolved, and our policy was set out very clearly, and and it has the strong support of, of the government. Standing in for the Nationals' leader... Local MP Michelle Landry. Look, I'm in um, one of the biggest coal mining electorates in the country and, um, you know, as a member of the National Party, we had a lot of discussions about this. We've got organisations like AgForce, National Farmers Federation. I've spoken to a lot of mining companies. Everyone uh, is working towards that target and I support um, the, the government on that. What do you say to Matt Canavan then? Does, does he need to pull his head in? Yeah, pull your head in, Matt. 
<laughs> Focusing fire on colleagues rather than opponents so close to the election is less than ideal. Labor's lines are writing themselves. Here's Shadow Climate spokesman Chris Bowen. They are fundamentally divided. If you vote for Dave Sharma and Wentworth, you'll get Barnaby Joyce continuing as Deputy Prime Minister and these climate deniers and delayers will continue to be a handbrake on real action. And it's adding to the woes of inner city members of the coalition where strong action on climate change is a hot-button issue. Even Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is up against it in the Melbourne seat of Kooyong. This is not breaking news from Matt Canavan. This is old news. He's held that position for some time, but it's not the position of his party, it's not the position of my party, and it's not the position of the coalition. His challenger is independent Monique Ryan. Look, I'm very grateful to Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce for exposing the fault lines that we suspected were present in the government. The, the lip service that the Nationals were, were paying to action on climate change was just that. It was just lip service and that is clearly the case. And we know now that this government will not take effective action on climate change if it's re-elected. Josh Frydenberg says that the government's commitment on net zero is clear, firm, not negotiable, that the position that Matt Canavan holds is not the position of the government, nor the National Party, nor the coalition. I don't believe anything this government says anymore, and I don't think that the people of Kuyong do either. We've lost faith in this government because it can't even govern itself, much less the country. The politics of geography, it seems, is alive and kicking hard. That's our reporter, David Lipson, there. Well, while the Prime Minister is shoring up seats in central and north Queensland, the LNP is feeling the threat further south. The coalition has traditionally held outer suburban and regional seats and Labor has traditionally garnered the inner city voter. But pressure is mounting in the inner city seats where the Greens and independents are laying down the challenge. Rachel Mealy reports. On the streets of Brisbane, it's easy to hear the kind of sentiment that's worrying the government. I'll vote Labor with the Greens second. And yeah. why are you using that as, a, as your preference order? I'm less big business, more individual, but I want the Greens to have an influence on whoever does get in. Inner city voters in Brisbane share common links with others in capital cities around the country. They usually earn a high income and hold down a steady job. Many own a property. In the LNP-held seat of Brisbane, which centres on Brisbane CBD and Inner North, the Greens polled more than 22% of the primary vote at the last federal election, and that sentiment remains strong. But I think that we need significant change and we need to stop this two-party system that we've been enduring for years. At the Queensland state election in 2017, the Greens picked up a seat in Brisbane's Inner South. Now they like their chances in the nearby federally Labor-held seat of Griffith. The Greens say party polling in that seat indicates it could get close to 30% of the primary vote. But of course, opinion polls can be wrong and this one isn't independently verified. But while in Brisbane the charge is coming from the Greens, in southern states it appears the teal independents are gaining ground. Clean energy investor Simon Holmes Accord is behind the Climate 200 group, which has financed the campaigns of the teal candidates. He says he wasn't approached by an independent candidate from Queensland to fund their campaign. I mean, this is a this is a very young movement. Um, uh, we have we have a lot of donors from um, from Queensland. 
I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more independent campaigns. He says the independents running under the Climate 200 banner are hearing discontent about the government's climate policy and that sentiment has been amplified since the campaign began. There's a saying that I think John Howard used to use a lot, we hear it from time to time, that the that the Liberal Party is a broad church um, and, and certainly the coalition uh, is, a, is a very a very broad church. Someone put it to me once that if you broaden, you know, if you broaden a church too much, the roof falls in. And I think that's what we're seeing right now, that there isn't an agreement within the coalition. The net zero wasn't even a commitment uh, that was made. It certainly wasn't legislated. But now we're hearing that consensus has broken down completely in the coalition. Simon Holmes, a court, says the Teal independence could be left with the balance of power. I don't, want to, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we would be very happy if two, three or four got up. And if, if three if three get up, that that will, all else remaining equal, that, that would put the independents in a balance of power situation. But I think we'll, we'll see a lot of those 22 seats, a lot of them will go, uh, will become marginal. So we're, not, we're normally used to having about 20 marginal seats in every election campaign. There's another 20 marginal seats being added with this, and I think that's making Australian democracy much healthier. Cos Samaras is a former Labor campaign strategist and now a director at Redbridge Group Australia, which has been conducting polling for the Teal candidates. He says they represent a threat mostly in Liberal-held seats around the country. It's it's seats like Hugh Yong, Goldstein, Wentworth... North Sydney, McKellar, Curtin over in WA, but he extends into other seats, which of course uh, uh, Labor is contesting, like Higgins, Benelong, Brisbane, uh, and so on. That's where you will see, um, I think, you know, um, the Liberal primaries drop into to, to, to around 10% in some seats. The average is between 5 and 10% drop. That report from Rachel Mealy. Well, as you've heard, the so-called Teal Independents are looking on track to gain some ground over the major parties in the southern states, particularly in metropolitan Sydney. Our reporter Isabel Rowe joins me now. Isabel, good afternoon. Which seats are under threat from independent candidates in Sydney? Well, the main two, Sally, appear to be Wentworth and North Sydney. Wentworth is moderate Liberal MP Dave Sharma's seat. It's being challenged by Allegra Spender, who's running on a platform of climate change reform and holding the major parties to account. There have been quite a few different polls now which suggest that Allegra Spender is a good chance to take that seat from Dave Sharma. Kylie Tink is running as an independent in North Sydney against moderate Liberal MP Trent Zimmerman. And there's also Sophie Scapps, who is running in the Northern Beaches seat of McKellar, who is contesting Jason Felinski. These are all traditionally Liberal-held seats, which are coming under threat from candidates, capitalising on a general annoyance, perhaps, not necessarily with the Liberal Party itself, but with the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, or just a general distaste for the usual suspects in Canberra. Isabel, there are also suggestions that Labor may be gaining some ground in metropolitan Sydney as well. There are some Labor strategists suggesting the seat of Benelong is an example of an area that Labor could pick up some more votes than usual. It was the former Prime Minister John Howard's seat, of course, uh, in inner Sydney. It's held by the Liberal Party by a 6.9% margin. And with the retirement of the Liberal MP John Alexander, the party is running Simon Kennedy, a candidate from the more conservative wing of the party. He was relatively unknown until yesterday when video 
video emerged of him speaking to a group called A Stand in the Park, which is known for sharing vaccine disinformation and anti-lockdown rhetoric. He told the group he was against vaccine mandates, but also referred to the the COVID vaccine as putting chemicals in your body. Simon Kennedy has since told the ABC he is a supporter of COVID vaccination, but thinks that the blanket mandates are complex. On the other hand, Labor's candidate for the seat is the former mayor of Ryde, Jerome Laxal. Labor strategists believe that the party can gain ground here because of the concern in Sydney in some areas about climate change policy in a federal corruption body. But the party would need significant swings to take the seat from the Liberal Party. I spoke to Labor candidate Jerome Laxal earlier today and I asked him about his opponent's comments about vaccination. It's just incredibly disappointing that we've still got political leaders out there who are undermining health advice. Uh, and if anyone um, is running for office, they, they should be um, standing up to people who are peddling conspiracy theories uh, and not seeking their vote. Bannalong seems to have been in the news in the last couple of days as a seat that Labor thinks it may have a chance in. How do you feel about it? We know the history of Bannalong. Uh, Labor has won it once in 50 or 60 years or however long the seat's been around. We know we're up against it and up against a Liberal Party who will be well resourced. That's Labor candidate Jerome Luxall. And before him, our reporter Isabel Rowe. You're listening to The World Today. The international response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is escalating, with Germany sending heavy weapons to Ukrainian fighters. Australia is also moving in lockstep with its allies by sending more artillery, weapons badly needed in Ukraine's east. Matt Bamford has this report. It's the latest sign that the West wants to not only stop Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it also wants to punish Moscow for its actions. Officials from more than 40 countries came to Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Their message was clear. They want Ukraine to win. Lloyd Austin is the US Defence Secretary. Ukraine needs our help to win today, and they will still need our help when the war is over. As President Biden says... Our security assistance has gone directly to the front lines of freedom. And that's why we're here today, to strengthen the arsenal of Ukrainian democracy. In a major shift for a country committed to conflict de-escalation, Germany has now entered the fray, sending dozens of anti-aircraft vehicles. Defence analyst and former ADF Major General Mick Ryan has been studying the conflict closely. This decision to transfer some old anti-aircraft weapons uh, will be useful. But really uh, what we're looking for, I think, from Germany is more substantial support. Australia is moving in sync with its Western allies, this morning announcing the delivery of six howitzer artillery guns. Mick Ryan says it's a small but significant contribution. We shouldn't negate the importance of every single weapon system we send. Artillery are critical to this fight in the East. I mean, this gives the Ukrainians multiple battalions of artillery they haven't had so far. And it's timely, as heavy shelling continues in the eastern Donbass region. Ukrainian forces, like this medic, say Russia is targeting small villages on the front line. We evacuated all the people from here, even people who didn't want to leave. Firstly, civilians had to be evacuated. There were children here and they needed to be evacuated. Despite a major refocusing of Russian forces, Mick Ryan says the region is still there to be won. The Russian operations in the east uh, are yet 
to really secure the kinds of objectives that the Russians have been after. Russian President Vladimir Putin isn't likely to give up easily. At a meeting with United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres in Moscow, he warned there'd be no agreements until territorial issues were resolved in the Donbass and Crimea. We can't sign security guarantees without deciding upon the territorial issues relating to Crimea, Sevastopol and the Donbass republics, he says. But the negotiations continue. I hope the talks will yield a positive result. Ukrainians on the ground are equally entrenched. We're on our land. There's no way back for us. But most of the Russian soldiers don't understand what they're doing here. And if some of them had a brain, they would understand that they are murderers and occupiers. That's a Ukrainian medic ending that report from Matt Bamford. Finally today, one of the United States' top universities is being forced to come to terms with its historical links to slavery. Harvard University says 70 members of its staff owned slaves before the practice was abolished in the state of Massachusetts nearly 250 years ago. Carly Williams has more. Slavery, a historic abomination that still tears at the fabric of America's soul. Dr Anne C. Bailey is a professor of history and a historian of slavery studies in New York. She's also a graduate of Harvard University, class of 86. And she could always feel her school had a connection to this abject part of her country's history. When I was an undergraduate, I was even then keenly aware of just on a just on some kind of subliminal level that Harvard must have had some connection to the period of slavery. It had to have because it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest institution of higher learning. I just had a sense of that. And she was right. An investigation by Harvard University has found that its leaders and staff enslaved more than 70 people before the practice was abolished in Massachusetts nearly 250 years ago. In 1636, the very first headmaster enslaved a man known as the Moor, In the early 18th century, a Harvard cook owned eight people, including a mother and four of her children. Slavery ended in Massachusetts in 1783, but the intergenerational trauma and economic disadvantage is still felt by the black community today. It's where we were, where we are still. We're still grappling with this issue of the history of slavery and how to talk about it, how to write about it, how to teach it about it. That is the dilemma of the 21st century. And this report shows Harvard benefited from its profits for decades after slavery was abolished in the form of donations from families who made their fortunes from slavery or from commodities produced by slaves. The university has pledged 100 million US dollars or 140 million in Australian dollars to help descendants of enslaved people, including those who worked at Harvard. Dr Anne C. Bailey says it's a start. There is a real attempt to Uh, One, to lift up the notion that descendants have to be identified and they have to be more than just honoured, but there should be compensation. Teaching, or let's say the (laughs) on-teaching of racial science and the history 
history of racial science uh, or what's called pseudoscientific racism. Dr Anne C. Bailey wants to see Harvard push for a national reconciliation and a national call for reparations. Harvard also plans to extend partnerships with what were called historically black universities. Dr Yolanda Moses is a professor of cultural anthropology at the University of California. She's happy there is some accountability today from Harvard. Institutions never talk about it because Harvard was also noted in the 19th century for being an abolitionist university where they had a lot of people who wanted to end slavery. So we never really knew about that early part of their history. So now we know. But Dr Yolanda Moses would like to see more education in American schools around slavery. Most Americans don't get taught the extent to which slavery was a part of the economic engine that made this country what it is today. Most people don't know that story. We do not in this country want to own it because it means that this this democracy, this country that supposedly was based on freedom, owned people. Our country will be a lot better off if we learn these facts, historical facts in school and not when we're in university or in grad school. So are you saying that it's not in the primary school or elementary school curriculum to learn about slavery? No, not this way. That's Dr Yolanda Moses, Professor of Cultural Anthropology at the University of California. She was speaking to our reporter there, Carly Williams. Well, that's all from us at The World Today for this Wednesday. The PM team will be along later today and we will be back again at the same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The world's richest person, Elon Musk, is buying Twitter. But why does he want it? And could his free speech stance prove a problem for the social media network? Today, Mike Isaac, a technology correspondent for the New York Times, on the global influence of the social media giant and the billionaire's grand plan. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.